Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter four, The Leaky Cauldron. It took Harry several days to get used to his strange new freedom. Never before had he been able to get up whenever he wanted or eat whatever he fancied. He could even go wherever he liked, as long as it was in Diagon Alley, and as long... I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Friends, it's been so exciting to see people on social media say they're coming to our live shows and people are buying tickets for San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle and Portland. And we are so excited to see you there. So the dates are Thursday, June 8th in Seattle, Sunday, June 11th in Portland, Wednesday, June 14th in LA and Thursday, June 15th in San Francisco. So we'd love to see you. Come to harrypottersacredtext.com and buy your tickets there. If you come to the L.A. show, you can also meet my whole family, who you've heard stories about. And Ariana's whole family will be there because we're from L.A. So L.A. people, I mean, everybody really come out. We're so excited. These are some of my favorite cities in the world. But L.A. people, I mean, you'll get to meet my mom. Vanessa, will you tell me a story? I would love to. Every summer from when I was born till I was eight years old, my cousin Ronnie would come from Tel Aviv and spend the summer with us. He was 10 years older than I was, but he would come and stay in order to practice his English. Ronnie was like a superstar to my brothers and I. The three of us had just crushes on him. He was tall and knew how to do all these things. Like my parents would speak in Hebrew to each other so we wouldn't understand. And he would crack the code and whisper to us what my parents were actually saying. It was just like the best thing ever. In fact, one of my strongest early memories is Ronnie got my older brother David's bedroom when he came to visit. And so David, Jonathan, and I would all share a room. And I remember waking up in the mornings and my mom set some time of like we weren't allowed to wake Ronnie until some reasonable hour. I don't know, like eight or nine. And so I remember sitting outside of his room with my brothers, watching the clock, waiting for the minute when we could go in and wake him and literally like sit like little ducks in a row and be like, shh, don't wake him. But just pray that he would wake up because he was just like this six foot tall toy for us. We loved him so much. I mean, it was just like it was like having a movie star in the house. And I was thinking about that as we read this chapter through the theme of hospitality because talking to Ronnie now, we're still close, and he looks back on that time as my parents being, like, so hospitable and generous to him and my family giving up a bedroom and feeding him for the summer and taking him in. And 
I look back on it as this amazing time where the coolest guy ever was in our midst. And so I, I think that that is sort of hospitality at its best, where everybody feels like they're winning and everybody feels enriched by it. And I think we see some of that in this chapter. That story resonates so much. I remember older cousins or, you know, friends of the family coming and it was like the most exciting time. And now that I'm sometimes that older cousin, it can be exciting for me as well. And so I love that idea of hospitality being something where everyone is enriched by that relationship. And I think, as you say, we'll find some of that in this chapter, but I think we'll also find other kinds of hospitality in it. So I'm excited to dig into this theme together. Likewise. So as we examine the chapter, let's remind ourselves what happens, Vanessa. Are you ready for a 30-second recap? Yep. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Harry now is living at the Leaky Cauldron, and he's just like walking around Diagon Alley and eating a lot of ice cream, and he buys his books, and he's really coveting um, the new Quidditch broom. God, I couldn't think of that word. And um, he's sort of waiting for Hermione and Ron to show up. They show up. They go book They go book shopping. Hermione gets crookshanks and they all go back. They're all staying at the Leaky Cauldron. And Harry overhears Molly and Arthur talking about how Sirius Black is actually going to go after Harry and Harry should is upset about not being able to go to Hogsmeade. It's called a broom. <laughs> broom. Yeah. That's Fi- how you say it. Firebolt. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to call it a robe. <laughs> Are you ready? Bring it on. Okay, the word is broom. Tip from me to you. Thank you. On your mark, get set, go. We see Harry building himself a little life. He talks to the mirror in the leaky cauldron. He's really feeling at home. Um, He buys all his things. The monster book from Hagrid turns out to be a blessing because there's a ton of these monster books that are very aggressive in flourishing blots. Um, Scabbers is missing a toe or like a little claw or something. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. And um, he's happy to see the Weasleys. Percy is being big-headed because he's head boy and everyone's teasing him. And Mr. and Mrs. Weasley are worried about Harry and should they tell him or not. And um, yeah, they're just all happy. Okay, so we're going to do a little literary term class right now. Uh-huh. There's a difference between a spoiler and foreshadowing. Okay. You didn't spoil anything by saying that Scabbers is missing a toe. You foreshadowed. Okay, well, so you don't know the word for broom, and I don't know the word for foreshadow. <laughs> we should definitely have a podcast about books. You and me <laughs> together, kid. So, Casper, you said that you think we will see different kinds of hospitality in this chapter. Where would you like to start? I mean, I feel like there's some obvious hospitality happening, right? Harry is staying at the Leaky Cauldron. It's an inn. He comes back after a day of shopping, and the text tells us that someone had been in to tidy. So someone else is kind of making his home, is welcoming him into the Leaky Cauldron. He's paying to stay, we assume. But nonetheless, right, like someone is making him feel welcome and um, um, you don't think I, so? No, I do. Do we count that as hospitality? I know we call it the hospitality sector, right? Somebody works in hospitality if they work in the hotel business, for example. But Cornelius Fudge has been there and like told Tom to take care of Harry. So there's political pressure to take good care of Harry. And then someone is paying. So would you count that as hospitality? Absolutely. I think so. My My family runs a bed and breakfast. And I think a big part of that is making people feel at home. Even though they're paying for their room and their breakfast, there's a way of doing that which is very, like, functional and cold. And there's another way of doing it which is saying, how was your day? Inviting them in to have a cup of tea. 
I think that those two things are not diametrically opposed, paying for a service and doing it in a way that feels welcoming and homey. But isn't there a qualitative difference from when you are being hospitable to a guest who's a personal guest and you are being hospitable to a guest who's paying for a service? Well, if it was my choice, no one would come to visit and I'd finally have some peace and quiet. (laughs) But yes, no, I, I do think there's a difference. I don't think that money is the key differentiator. I think it's about whether you know the person or not, because we've had plenty of friends and family to stay with us. And of course, that's a friendship or a family relationship. But there's also strangers who come to stay who are friends of friends or something. And that feels very similar to the kind of bed and breakfast guest who pays. So I I think it's more about the existing relationship or not. Yeah. And the inverse is that Ronnie, we stayed with his family in Tel Aviv and didn't pay and he stayed with us and nobody ever exchanged money. But even though there was so much love there and so much affection, there's still a desire to pay back, right? Like Ronnie would babysit for my parents as a way to thank them. And so I think you've convinced me. Well, and I think this relates to what we talked about in the recent episode on family, that so much of what makes family is relationships of care. And I think hospitality is another kind of way that we build those relationships of trust and intimacy and that kind of give and take. That's the foundation for these high trust relationships that we all want. So I wonder if the difference is with the Leaky Cauldron, there is like an explicit contract of sorts with a bed and breakfast guest. Whereas with hospitality, I feel like the contract is not explicit. It's not like my parents said to Rani, look, you can stay with us, but you have to babysit for us six times over the course of the summer, and you have to be sure to always clear your plates. So I guess with hospitality, if it's done in its sort of fullest, there's a lot of trust. You're saying, I'm welcoming you into my house, and I trust that you're going to be an addition to this house and not a burden. Well, this is really interesting because I think the gift of hospitality is doing so without the expectation that it'll be returned. I don't know. That feels like real hospitality in some way. I agree. But I do think that when you offer hospitality to someone, even if you're not expecting gratitude, if they are completely ungrateful and rude and keep taking as you give – It could quickly become a cancer in a relationship. So there's risk involved in hospitality. Even when you expect nothing, somebody can give you less than nothing. And they're not going to be invited back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) For us, with the bed and breakfast, like sometimes the hospitality was really inverted. And so we had one night where one of our guests who was relatively regular came downstairs with a notepad of paper, which he'd written on. And uh, my mom was like, well, you know, how did you sleep? And he said, well, not very well. There was a burglary at 3 a.m. next door. And I took down detailed notes of who it was and when it happened and called the police. And and he didn't wake us because he didn't need to. But he had really become the host and offered this great neighborly favor. And then my mom was like, so that's uh, 60 pounds for the night, please. (laughs) (laughs) And the kind of tables had turned. And was still the right thing to do to charge him, but it suddenly felt like, you know, those kind of questions come up when you're in this relationship where you start giving. And I think that's exactly like your experience with your cousin, where like, who got the better deal? I don't know. So I think we see that kind of like big generosity in the text when Hermione insists on doing muggle studies. She's grown up in the muggle world. Everyone's like, why do you need to study muggle studies? Like, you know this world. And she's like, no, I'm interested in studying it from the wizarding point of view, which as a generous act of being hospitable to the wizarding world, I just think that's amazing to have that kind of openness 
and kind of welcoming spirit. I think that's exactly what hospitality looks like. She's basically hospitable to a different way of seeing the world by studying it through a wizarding lens. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome, too. Okay. And I agree with Hermione that it sounds really interesting, which made me feel like such a dork. I was like, that would be really interesting. So I'm with Hermione. I'm having a hard time following you as to why it's hospitable. Do you mind just walking me through? Yeah. I mean, the way I think about it is if tidying up the bed for Harry by the staff at the Leaky Cauldron is a way of showing hospitality to Harry's physical presence, I feel like Hermione is showing hospitality to the ideas of the wizarding world about her own background. It's a stance to the world which says, welcome. There's a curiosity there. Like she already knows the content. She wants to learn how they're looking at the content. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. She almost wants to be like a diplomat between the two. She's like a UN ambassador. Diplomacy is the perfect metaphor. And if you think about who goes into the diplomatic core, it's people who are skilled in being hosts and guests because you're literally living in another country as the guest of that government, representing your own perspective, but always doing it in this delicate conversation. I love that idea of Hermione as a diplomat. I think the real hospitable moment with Hermione is that she walks into the magical menagerie and says, I want an owl. She wants this, like, utility animal. And instead, she walks out with Crookshanks, a bow-legged, ugly cat, simply because nobody else was willing to buy this cat. And not only does she buy that cat, she doesn't say, look, I bought it because I felt bad for it. Isn't it ugly? She immediately starts complimenting it and gets herself excited about hosting him. Even though he's a small tiger. Yeah, exactly. And Hermione's like, isn't he perfect? And that to me is also hospitality. She was planning on welcoming a bird into her house. And instead, she welcomes the thing that eats birds. That is, I think, really crucial to hospitality is that we can't control who comes in the door. She has the plan for a bird. And, you know, Hermione, smart woman, is thinking about owls just like I am. But instead, she's like, this is who arrived. And I welcome you with the same warmth and excitement. And Crookshanks is immediately a burden on Hermione. Ron and she are really, I mean, clearly at this point, they're already like best, best of friends with how concerned they are for one another. Ron is immediately like worried about how many subjects she's taking. They are close. And Crookshanks immediately puts a rift between the two of them because Crookshanks and Scabbers aren't getting along. And she doesn't care. She's like, I have chosen to be hospitable to this animal. I have committed to this animal and purchasing it. She could turn around and go back to the magical menagerie and be like, look, I'm so sorry. I wanted an owl. She doesn't. Like, she chooses to be loyal to Crookshanks and sticks with it. And it pays off. That's making me think about, as a country, like, how do we welcome the stranger? And... Sometimes the stranger disrupts the status quo. And that doesn't mean that we should say goodbye to the stranger. It means that there's something wrong with the status quo. I think that's a fascinating idea. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which I always misquote, but from Jane Eyre, which is, commitments are not for times in which they are difficult to keep. They are for times like these when our entire body rises up against them, that we have to keep the commitments we made when we were sane. And then she says, not when we are mad. And so it's you have to trust that you committed to a hospitality to Crookshanks when you were sane and you made a reasonable decision. And just because you're upset now that it's disrupting your relationship with Ron doesn't mean it was a bad decision. It means that now you have to deal with the problem right in front of you. 
That reminds me of our very first episode. Remember, we, we read through the theme of commitment and we talked about that little town in France, Le Chambon sur Lignon, you know, the town who had said, we will welcome the stranger. And then when it came to the Second World War and Jews were fleeing, they said, we welcome the stranger, even if it risks our own lives. And they saved hundreds of lives. And I, I'm always so inspired by that. And it starts with little moments like this. And it, it ends up about saving lives. I, I think that's really important because, again, thinking back to our better breakfast experience, sometimes you'd have guests who were like not that pleasant, who would complain about small things that don't really matter or would, you know, arrive drunk or, you know, all sorts of issues. And it's not always fun. My mom once said, you know, we often had Israeli kids staying with us. And we had one guy stay with us who I really didn't like. And I was like, why do we do this? Right? Like, I was exhausted. I was constantly giving up my bed to these people. And she was like, we don't do it for them. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, this is making me question whether money is changing hands between Tom and Harry or Fudge. Maybe Tom is saying, listen, Harry needs a place to stay. I have beds. He can stay. There's no evidence that he's paying. I'm going to choose to read that Tom is is saying exactly what your mom said and said, you know, the right thing to do is to give this boy a place to stay for the next week. So, Casper, we were talking about whether or not Tom is taking money for hosting Harry in the Leaky Cauldron. Right. But there's a place where we know that Harry is getting goods without giving any money, and that's at the ice cream shop, where Harry is just, like, sitting on the stoop, and Florian Fortescue is not only giving him constant ice cream sundaes, but he's also, like, helping him write his history papers. I can't imagine any motivation other than hospitality. Like, why would Fortescue be giving away his ice cream, if not for hospitable reasons. This kid, like, has nowhere else to be. I'll give him ice cream sundaes so he feels comfortable hanging out here. I had exactly the same reaction when I read it the first time. And then I started thinking about it. And I was like, he's sitting outside. This is kind of like product placement in Diagon Alley. This is like celebrity endorsement of ice creams. You think Florian is your friend? No, he's using Harry. He's filling this child up with sugar and fat and using him as like free advertising to the unsuspecting children of Diagon Alley. This is like the horrible new Pepsi ad. This is bad, bad Florian. Casper, let's unpack this a little bit. Tom, who most likely is getting paid, you think is maybe not getting paid. But Florian, who we explicitly know is giving Harry free ice cream, you think has capitalistic intentions. I do because he's putting Harry on display. And I think the whole like feeding him with help for his homework is just a strategy to keep Harry like just outside the front door advertising this delicious pistachio ice cream. And I mean, it's like social media, right? Like Facebook or Twitter, where we think something's free. And if the product is free, we're the product. Our attention, our engagement with these websites, and as much as I love them, like, we've got to realize we're the data that they sell. So I feel like it's the same with this ice cream. Like, Florian has got Harry hooked. I think that's right. I also just think it's possible that he, like, knows that this kid has nothing to do, is stuck in Diagon Alley. Like, he's seen him go in and out of that Quidditch shop and stare at something that he can't afford for days. He knows he's an orphan. I just think that it's possible that this is hospitality. And so I guess my question is, like, I think that your point is right. Whenever you can't figure out who's paying for something, you're the one being sold. And I think that that's an important thing for us to 
remember in terms of like the machine, but I, I do think it's genuinely possible that this guy just is like, here, kid, you have a purpose to sit here. I actually like telling old history stories. I'm a history buff. And I think, you know, I'm probably pushing my point a little hard because I think you're right. Like another piece of feeling like you've been welcomed somewhere is feeling like you have a place. And this is really a place where Harry can sit and feel like he's not in the way, where he's comfortable and welcomed. And just that familiarity with a space around you, if you're in a new place somewhere, that that's really important. And I think that that's what Florian is offering him. You know, it's a home base from where he can go on little excursions to get, you know, his new robes because he's entering third year. It's like a little home base, which he can always return to. I, I think that's true. I have another sunny view of a shopkeeper that you can ruin for me, Casper. <laughs> Bring it on. Who are you thinking of? So the shopkeeper at Flourish and Blotts is, I think, very hospitable to Harry because Harry comes to buy his books and he starts looking. He's in like the divination um, part of the bookshop and he starts looking at a book called Death Omens, you know, and Harry gets sort of like drawn in by this picture of a big dog because he just saw this big dog and he's worried that maybe he saw a death omen. And the shopkeeper says to him, you don't want to buy that book. If you buy that book, you're going to start looking for death omens everywhere. Some people start looking for them so much that they get scared to death. Now, it's in the shopkeeper's interest for Harry to buy as many books as he can, but the shopkeeper is just caretaking this kid and being like, you're welcome in this space, you can browse, and you don't have to buy in order to be in the space. Okay, ruin it. Go. I'm not going to ruin it. I'm going to affirm you because I think that the manager does another thing, which is all these third years are coming in to buy this monster book, and he's got a cage of these monster books, and they're literally eating each other, which just terrifies me and the first thing he does when harry says oh i need books for my third year is like okay puts on his gloves gets ready to like reach in and probably get bitten he's been bitten five times that morning already and harry says no no i've already got that one and then the manager says have you a look of enormous relief spread over the manager's face thank heavens for that i've been bitten five times already this morning and that's information he doesn't share until Harry tells him he doesn't need it, right? He could have said, ugh, another third year at Hogwarts. Oh, my life is horrible. But he's like, let me just keep that for myself. I don't need to ruin your day with that. So I feel like there's some maturity and just wisdom being exhibited here by the Flourish and Blots team that you can have a difficult time, but you don't have to project it onto everyone else all of the time. No doubt you need somewhere to talk about it. I'm sure they've got great therapists. <laughs> or, I mean, their staff room is just full of, like, whining hipsters. That staff room is full of those invisible books that they can't find. <laughs> I know. That breaks my heart. And the fact that he says we still can't find them, like, that he thinks they were real, that's heartbreaking. I thought they were real. <laughs> <laughs> it's a scam. The Wizarding World is so cruel. <laughs> Somebody scammed them. <laughs> Vanessa, we are entering an exciting moment because we're going to do Pardes together for the first time without Rabbi Scott. So are you ready for this? I'm not nervous at all. So just to remind us all, pardes is an approach to biblical exegesis, which basically means a way of reading and engaging and gleaning meaning from a text 
That comes from rabbinic Judaism. So similar to Lectio Divina, it's really a kind of structured way that we can engage with a snippet of text. And there are four stages. The first one is pshat, which is really the surface level, the literal meaning, perhaps. The second is remez. So there we're kind of looking for hints or hidden or symbolic meaning of the text. The third is drush, which is to seek into the deeper meaning. So maybe thinking about the kind of non-contextual or the moral or the philosophical explanations. And the fourth one I'm still a little nervous about because we have to look for the sod. And the sod is the secret or the mystery. And so it's something that really doesn't even come from the text necessarily. It's something that is esoteric. It's mystical. And it's given to you as a reader. It doesn't fly off from the page. And so we're going to have to really take a little moment to be quiet and find out what the sode is. So the snippet I wanted to work with is towards the end of this chapter, when in answer to Fred's question of how is everyone getting to King's Cross, Mr. Weasley says, the ministry's providing a couple of cars. The ministry's providing a couple of cars. So, Vanessa, can you tell us about the shot of this? Yeah, the shot is that there's a lot of kids and a lot of luggage to get from the Leaky Cauldron to King's Cross Station. And so there's sort of a logistical nightmare afoot. And the Ministry of Magic has given Mr. Weasley cars to transport all the kids, which sets off a few alarm bells because Mr. Weasley is low level at the ministry. So it's curious why the ministry would be doing this. This seems like a nice perk for sort of middle management. And the other thing that strikes me is we know at this point that this is really a safety measure. So we've seen Harry being put up in the leaky cauldron. This is like another protective way to get him to King's Cross without the potential attack of Sirius. So it's already suggesting some danger, as you say, like there's a mysterious element to it. So that's the shot. It's pretty simple, right? The literal meaning. So let's step into Remez. What happens here? So one of the things that Rabbi Perlow said that is a Jewish tradition to do in one of these stages is to think about all of the times a certain root of a word or a certain word comes up throughout the entire series or throughout the entire book. And so I thought that that might be interesting to do here with the word car. Ooh. So the car moments that come to mind are all from book two, and it's that that old Ford Anglia comes to save Harry, then Harry and Ron use it in that very weird way that really annoys me. But then it comes back from the forest and saves them. So cars in book two have this like saving relational thing going for them. And it's the Weasley's car. And here are the Weasleys with, okay, the cars belong to the ministry this time. But again, that protective element, that relational piece is there. Cars seem to embody in that sense protection, and even love. Right. Are there any other car moments that occur to you? The other one I'm thinking of is the beginning of this book, when we see the Dursleys kind of showing off, right? They go outside and talk loudly about their new car. And the image I have of ministry cars are kind of shiny, black, new, expensive cars. And there's that cliche that dictators the world over will buy expensive Range Rovers before feeding the poor in their country, just as government departments in our countries buy expensive cars. But there's some sort of symbol of power, some sort of symbol of wealth that's associated with these cars. And I think in some way, 
that institutional power is claiming Harry here, right? Like Fudge doesn't punish Harry. He brings him in and, you know, he's excused for something that other people would have been punished for. It seems like Harry is beginning to be compromised by the power status in the magical world through this car symbol. And there's something there for me. Oh, I agree. When somebody sends a car for you, that is a status sign. You know, if I'm speaking somewhere and they're like, oh, we'll send a car. It's like, whoa, you really want me. And it's not just one car. It's a couple of cars. And what we know of the magical world is if they wanted a car that could fit all these people, one car would be fine, right? There's just a magical charm and there's space enough for everyone. Don't you think that the reason that they would do that is so that it didn't look conspicuous when they pulled off at King's Cross? That like just endless number, like a clown car number of people in bags kept coming out of a car. I feel like they just don't want to be conspicuous. That's very smart. I like that. But yeah, I think that these cars are showing us that Harry is like super not a normal kid. So much effort is being put in to Harry and so much effort is being put into making it look like nothing special is being done on Harry's behalf. Yeah, so I think the kind of hint that we're finding in this Remez stage is that these cars are saying something about Harry and his relationship to the institutions of the wizarding world. Okay, so now it's time for Drush. Do you mind reminding me? Yeah, so for Drush, we really want to think about, we've been kind of contextual, right, in the story of the Potter books with some expeditions beyond. But now we really want to be thinking about the non-contextual ways in which we can examine this phrase, the ministries providing a couple of cars. So this is where we get to ask moral questions and philosophical questions and really start to think about the deeper inquiry that we could go to with that phrase. So what this is making me wonder about is what like evil or big things am I complicit in by taking something that seems free to me. You know, Harry is complicit in government activity, in Dementors coming to Hogwarts, in all sorts of things by really doing nothing. And the Weasleys are sort of making an arrangement by taking these free cars. So when I turn on my water tap, what evils am I complicit in all the time? without even being capable of being aware of it. And the moral question to me is, and what is my responsibility in that? I try to be a conscious consumer, and but like you can drive yourself crazy paying too much attention to those things. And then there's some things that you just can't get around. I mean, Harry has to get to King's Cross. How else are they supposed to get there? So that's what this is making me wonder about. That's super interesting, Vanessa, and I think a great point. So I just want to take a second of quiet before the sode arrives. I'm hoping it arrives, but I feel like we need a second. So I'm just going to read it one more time. The ministry's providing a couple of cars. What's the secret that you're hearing here, Vanessa? So something that just occurred to me is that the time that you like send cars for someone tends to be for funerals. You get a procession of cars. Even for a wedding, there's usually like one limo for the bride and groom. But the only time that a procession of cars gets sent that I'm aware of is for a funeral. And I wonder if on some level this is sort of the beginning of Harry's march towards his own death. The first two books was about him becoming a wizard. And now Sirius is back. Things are about to get set into motion in a real way to bring Voldemort back. 
And these two cars being sent are a sign to us that the funeral procession is starting. Oh, my God. Vanessa, the funeral procession isn't for Harry. It's for Fred. Fred is the one who asks, how are we getting to King's Cross tomorrow, Dad? And Mr. Weasley says the ministry is providing two cars. It's two cars for the twins. It's this symbol of impending doom. And, like, this is foreshadowing. And the irony is that in the whole of this scene, everyone's making fun of Percy for being serious and solemn. And maybe he's the only one who has an intuition of what this actually means. They just think he's being pompous. And I don't know, maybe Percy is more insightful than we had previously thought. It's always the person who takes things seriously who's going to be right in the end. We live in a serious world, so. Oh, this is just heartbreaking. And it matches what we talked about with these ministry cars being black as well, right? There's that there's that physicality, the color of mourning, and the color of seriousness, and the color of power in both of these cars. The sode makes me sad. This voicemail comes from Abigail Smith. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Abigail, and I'm calling from Florida. First off, I love the show and everything that you're doing. I took a Harry Potter and religion class when I was at FSU, and listening to your podcast, Take It One Step Further and Always Be So Positive, makes my morning commute one of the best parts of my day. I was re-listening to book two in preparation for season three, and I was struck with a thought from chapter three, The Burrow, through the lens of curiosity. When I was younger, I was a very curious person, and my mom, who, by the way, I love, used to tell me to stop being nosy. And I would reply, I'm not being nosy, I'm being curious. Because even as a kid, I knew that one was good and one was bad, and I wanted to keep asking my questions. So I guess my question for you guys would be, when do we stop being curious and start being nosy? Is there a line that we cross when the information we're looking for isn't to help anything, but just because we want to know? Even in book one, Mrs. Weasley tells the boys not to ask Harry about his scar because it's rude and it's going to dredge up bad memories for him. But then we see Mr. Weasley in book two asking Harry a bunch of questions about what's it like growing up with muggles and what's the purpose of a rubber duck. So my question for you is when does curiosity and nosiness meet? Abigail, I think that's a great question and one that I think everybody struggles with. There's a very Jewish answer to that, which is there's um, a theory called Lashon Hara in Judaism, which technically means the evil tongue. But there's a lot of theology around gossiping. And the answer from the Jewish perspective around Lashon Hara is that something goes from curiosity to gossip when it is solely for the purpose of entertainment Or when the sole purpose you have, even if the information is useful, the only reason you are asking for the information is for entertainment value. And so it's really about intentions and then how you plan on using the information. So if you're genuinely curious about something, the way that Mr. Weasley is curious about the purpose of a rubber duck, he really wants to know. And I think it'll impact his work and its general knowledge. And he's not being entertained at the expense of anybody else. But at the point in the book in which Mrs. Weasley tells the boys not to ask Harry about his fame, they would simply be doing that for their own amusement. That would in no way be for any sort of greater purpose. So I think that Mrs. Weasley is right. 
I think that these things can become really gray and is something can be the right question to ask, even if you're sort of doing it for entertainment purposes. And certainly you can be interested in, quote unquote, entertained by information that you're extracting for other reasons. But I think that that is a good rule of thumb. It's one that I've tried to use. Casper, we now get to bless a character each from this week's chapter. Who would you like to bless? I want to bless the talking mirror because this is comedy gold. The mirror is kind of a little sassy, but like also very sweet. So, for example, at the very end of the chapter, Harry is freaking out because he realizes that Sirius Black is is on the hunt to murder him. And he says to himself, I'm not going to be murdered, Harry said out loud. And then the mirror says, that's the spirit, dear. And I just feel like this mirror is like a loving grandmotherly or grandfatherly figure who's just chilling out on that wall and sending love to whoever walks by. So like if you're just sitting at your desk and like people are running around or if you're at home doing the dishes and people getting crazy, you just say, that's the spirit, dear, and carry right on. I love this mirror. I do too. She's like, your hair is great. Leave it. You're never going to make it better. (laughs) She's great. How about you, Vanessa? Who receives your blessing this week? Well, not surprisingly, my blessing this week is going to be for Molly Weasley. Molly is the defender of Harry's right to have a childhood in the scene. Arthur and Molly are fighting in the scene. Arthur wants to tell Harry to be on the lookout for Sirius. And Molly thinks there's no need to tell him. The adults know. Dumbledore knows. The Dementors are going to be there. Why does Harry need to know? And I obviously think that both Arthur and Molly are well-intended. But I think Molly is right. There are certain things that you just don't need to tell, especially children. There's nothing Harry can productively do about this except be worried And I just think that Molly has her eye on the right thing, which is Harry's overall health and well-being. And so I want to offer a blessing to anybody who is willing to hold back information in order to protect someone else and has really done the hard work of thinking through whether or not that is the right thing to do and then makes a decision to keep that for themselves. That's a, a burden that Molly is willing to take on. And I think that deserves a blessing. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We'd love to see you at one of our live shows on the West Coast this summer. Tickets are on sale now at harrypottersacredtext.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 5, The Dementor, through the theme of foresight. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. And we want to say a big thank you and goodbye to Jen Stark, who has been our Ravenclaw head of house for the last eight months and our social media coordinator extraordinaire. She introduced Wizarding Wednesdays, and we're so grateful to have had her on the team. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we have a lot of thanks for donating to our crowdfunder, Marilyn Pukila, for helping us do our amazing transcripts. Alicia Vermeer, Oscar Cadeau, Rebecca Dehovitz, Britton Howell, Laura Espinoza, Meredith Cooney, Lexi Giordulo, Tara Demuth, Bonnie Chi, and Dave Jones. This week's voicemail was from Abigail Smith. A big thanks as always to Rebecca and Charlie Ludley and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys.
But there's a place where we know that Harry is getting goods without giving any money, and that's at the ice cream shop with Flor at Florian Fortescue. Florian Florian Fortescue's. Is that not right? I can't. Fortescue. 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 I can't say it. 